0: Father, I pray that as we come to your word tonight, Lord, that as we deal with issues that are deep, that are complex, that are controversial, that you would enable me to teach effectively, to communicate clearly, to be bold uh, where necessary, and to be humble and uh, not overstate conclusions were necessary as well it's a hard hard passage to teach Lord and I pray that you would give me wisdom and and assist me Lord as I preach your word tonight and above all else Lord may your word speak may your words communicate and uh, and may we bring glory to you as we come before you and your word tonight amen okay Mark chapter 1 we uh, will try and finish it off tonight, we're in verse 40 is where we're picking up, and you'll see that there are only five, uh, five or six verses to go until the end of the chapter, but this may be a two-week story, but I'm going to try and get it down to one week, but it is, it is difficult and it is complicated and it is deeply, deeply controversial. So, I will do the best that I can. Let's, let's, uh, you know, I was going to say let's read through the passage, but I can't even do that until I've dealt with one issue. So, let's start by just reminding ourselves what the scripture is. The scripture is God's word to us. It's God breathed. You know, we, we talk about it being inspired, but literally it's actually expired. It's God breathing out his word. And of course, the word for breath and the word for spirit is the same in, in, in both Greek and Hebrew. And so there's this, this sense of God's spirit and, and breathing out and spiriting through his spirit, us, his word. And his word, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring scripture... His Word is inerrant. It's without error. It is perfect. There is nothing that is wrong contained within it. To be more specific, when we are talking about God's inerrant, Spirit-inspired Word, we're not talking about this Bible. This is my ESV translation every English translation is the work of men trying to translate the Bible from the original languages and tonight I have with me one of my Greek Bibles and that's not the inspired Word of God either and you say well why is that? Well the answer is is because what is inspired is the original documents that were originally written by the original authors So in the case of Mark's gospel, the gospel that Mark himself wrote, that's inspired. That's without error. We just completed this morning Ephesians, and we talked about the Ephesian letter and Paul's writing of it, and how it would have been taken around the different churches in the region. That was inspired. But as soon as human beings come along and make copies of those, those letters then there is the potential for error. Because God inspired the authors to write without error because the Holy Spirit was the divine author working with the human authors. But we have no guarantee of all that any of the people copying these manuscripts were inspired in that. And so the problem that we have is we believe in an inspired Bible, but strictly speaking, that Bible doesn't exist because none of the original manuscripts have survived. We simply have copies of the original manuscripts. Now, I say all of this... Partly because I think it's good for you to know this stuff and for someone who believes in the Word of God and someone who, who can walk you through this, who's a friend of the Word to tell you this stuff rather than you being told by someone who's an enemy of the Word and wants to use it to, to somehow take you away from trusting in the Bible. But it's important to know that because sometimes in manuscripts there are differences in the Greek text. In the, in the New Testament, obviously the Greek text and the New Testament for example. So, most of those differences are completely inconsequential. If, if I was writing um, something down and I misspelled a word, if instead of a, a, a D I put a B, or instead of an E I put an A, then you probably know what I meant and you just think, oh that's just a spelling mistake. And, and most of the errors in the copying of the biblical manuscripts, are of no consequence at all. They're just spelling mistakes and things like that. Sometimes they're a little bit more significant, but they have no significance for doctrine or anything like that. Sometimes there would be words that would be um, added in by the scribes to harmonize. So if Mark said this and Matthew said this and Luke said this, then sometimes there'd be a tendency to kind of get them saying stuff that sounded a little bit more the same. And and people were doing that with the best intentions of the world, not really understanding that each of the Gospel writers had their own distinct thing to say. And and these textual differences come up so often because we in the English-speaking world have a rich heritage of the use of the King James Bible. And when the King James Bible was written many centuries ago, there was a certain number of Greek manuscripts that had been discovered, and those manuscripts were used to translate into English. But since then, there has been a multitude more manuscripts discovered, and many of them older, from a wider geographical region, and therefore, most, manuscripts to, most modern Bibles today will have differences from the King James, uh, because simply, they're working with a larger number of Greek texts. The New King James was a revision of the King James and didn't change the manuscript evidence. And so that tends to differ. And so you get these differences between King James and New King James and other modern versions. There are some in the, some churches that will tell you that the modern versions are somehow heretical because they've taken things out of the Bible. And that is just, not only is it ridiculous, and not only is it borderline cultic, it's, it's a nonsensical, logical argument, because it's just circular reasoning. The King James is right, this Bible's got something that's missing, therefore it's taken it away. Well, why not the King James has added it? You know, it's just a, it's just a circular argument. So, so there are all these differences between the texts. We're going to have to deal with this in Mark's Gospel, because in the Bible there are two large passages that we're very familiar with on our English Bibles, that don't exist in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. In John's Gospel, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery is one of them. And the other one is the ending of Mark's Gospel. So when we come to the end of Mark, a long, long time down the line, we'll deal with that. Now, why am I telling you all of this today? Because in the passage before us today, we have one word that is different in different Greek manuscripts. Okay? So let's have a look at the story now with that said, and I will tell you where the manuscripts differ on a very crucial point. Verse 40, A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, and, and, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, we have this leper approach Jesus. We've seen in the previous passages... That Jesus has shown his authority to heal, and Jesus has shown his authority to cast out demons. One thing I didn't note at the end of last week's sermon, and I admit freely it's because I hadn't considered it until I was doing further reading this week. But he goes away last week to pray in a quiet place. And he goes to a quiet place to pray, everyone's looking for you, they come and find him, everyone's looking for you, and he said to them, and this is the result of his quiet time of prayer and solitude, let us go to the next town, so I may preach there also, for that's why I came out, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. Now the thing I didn't note last time, which is very intriguing, is he's been preaching a bit, he said that's what he's going to do. And then he healed, and he cast out demons. For well, cast out demons first and then healed. And now everybody's like, wow! And so all these people who have demons and all these people who are sick are coming to him, and he's like, we need to go out from here. And I need to go out and I need to preach. And he says, I'm going to preach and cast out demons. And what, retrospectively, is really noticeable is he doesn't say heal. And what's very interesting, apart from this story now, There's an absence of healings coming up in the next few chapters until a crucial point. It's almost as if Jesus has decided in his time of prayer that he needs to go out and preach rather than being this guy who's a doctor and everyone's bringing people to come. Can you heal this person? Can you heal that person? Rather than that, he's actually got a job to do and everybody wanting to be healed is distracting to a degree from the preaching that he's supposed to be doing concerning the kingdom. And I can understand why the casting out of demons might be necessary, because everything we've seen about demons so far indicates that they're very good at interrupting preaching. And so if you want to preach and be heard, then you need to cast out the demons so they don't interrupt your preaching. So I can understand that. But it seems as if it's it's possible and I'm I'm gonna use this word a lot of times tonight, I tentatively conclude, because there's so much in this passage I'm not very sure about, I tentatively conclude that perhaps the omission of healing at the end of verse 39 might be deliberate. And that might be a little bit of a clue as to what happens and why it happens here with the leper. Okay, so let's just have that in the back of our mind. Jesus has shown his power to heal. He's shown his power to cast out demons. And he's going to go out now and he's going to preach and cast out demons. But they've noticeably missed out healing. And there doesn't seem to be much indication of him doing that in the next chapter or so. Bear that in mind. Now this leper comes to him. This isn't somebody bringing the sick, this isn't him healing lots of people. There is a leper who specifically comes to him and implores him and kneels and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And then we're told Jesus was moved with, and this is where we have our questionable word. And most modern translations, the vast majority of translations, say that Jesus was moved with pity or with compassion. He was moved with pity or he was moved with compassion. That is not heretical, it's not wrong, it's perfectly normal, and it's indeed what we see Jesus being motivated by in other gospel accounts. So it's absolutely fine, right? The problem is, is that there is one significant Greek manuscript, very old one, that says that Jesus was moved with anger. With anger! So the leper approaches him, and in one Greek manuscript it says that the approaching of this leper af- affected Jesus, and he emotion- he, Jesus, in, in all the Gospels, he emotionally reacts to situations. And in most manuscripts it says that he was moved with compassion or pity, but in this one manuscript it says he was moved with anger. Now, it's interesting that we also have some Latin manuscripts which are much later that are translations from Greek manuscripts that say anger as well, and that's not an issue of different Greek words because the word's being translated now into a different language. So there obviously were other manuscripts as well that said anger. Now, the vast majority of manuscripts say compassion. So most pe- versions have always gone with that, but. What is interesting is when you read the commentaries, the more academic and scholarly commentaries, is most scholars are actually now starting to say that they think that the original was that he was moved with anger. Now, let's just, I don't want to give you a lesson in textual criticism. Textual criticism is the study of the various manuscripts trying to ascertain which one, the, which one represents the original that was written by the, the author. But the number one question with textual criticism that you need to ask is this. Why would somebody change it? Why would someone change it? And to me, with textual criticism, it's the most important question, right? If there's a spelling mistake, well, you've got a reason why it's different. Sometimes they would read and they would come to a line and they'd repeat the same line or they'd miss out a line, you know, and a whole bunch of words are missing, and then you've got a reason. Sometimes, um, sometimes there are words that sound the same. And sometimes when people copied manuscripts, they did so in a larger room where someone dictated to them rather than them looking, and they copied a word down with a wrong spelling because it sounded the same. You've got a reason, okay? Now, ask, consider this question in your minds, okay? If you come across a manuscript that says that Jesus came across as this, this leper comes to Jesus and that Jesus was angry, that's gotta look really strange. And it makes perfect sense to think well that's not right and to change it to compassion. But who on earth would look at a story where Jesus is moved with compassion and say, no, that's not right, I think he's more likely to be angry. It's it's not going to happen the other way. And, And that's why so many scholars today think that Jesus was moved with anger, even though there's very few manuscripts that say that, because there's no reason for anyone to change it to anger. But there's a lot of reason for someone to change anger to compassion. So when we weigh up the pros and cons of the argument... The manuscript evidence is strongly in favor of compassion. That's what we call external arguments. But the internal evidence, what's in the Bible, strongly suggests that anger was original. Mostly because there's no reason to change it to anger. The other thing that's very interesting is this same story is related in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. I think it's Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 5 off the top of my head. But... In those accounts it doesn't say that Jesus was moved with compassion. It doesn't say that he was affected at all. Most scholars think that Mark wrote first. If Mark said that they were moved, that he was moved with compassion, then we'd expect Matthew and Luke, who talk about Jesus being moved with compassion elsewhere in their Gospels, to copy that part as well, to take that part of the story with them. But if, if Mark said they'd move with anger, that would be a reason to leave that alone and not to copy that. So there's good evidence internally to suggest that Jesus was moved with anger. And then when you read these commentators, these scholars who say, looking at the evidence, I think Jesus was probably moved with anger. And then you say, okay, why was he angry? Then generally speaking, they haven't got a clue. They, d- they don't know. And the fact that they don't know is the strongest argument that he was angry. Because if it was an obvious answer, then it wouldn't stick out and it wouldn't be a need to change it. So I'm going to presume, tentatively, as a couple of Bible versions do, not many, just a couple of them. I'm going to, um, and, and some of your Bibles might have it as a footnote saying some manuscripts say, other Bibles don't. But I tentatively, and by the way, when I say I've come to this conclusion tentatively, it's not because I haven't spent time on it. I started studying this years ago. I've been fascinated by this passage for for several years. I've read the arguments for, I've read the arguments against, I've toed and froed, I've gone, I think it's anger. No, 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 I think it's compassion. No, 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 I think it's anger. And I read another article, no, no, I think it's compassion. And I've really shifted on this a lot over the years. And having to teach it tonight and knowing it was coming up, I've kind of had to come to a decision. And I tentatively think that it's anger. And I think that looking at the text more broadly has encouraged me in that. And I will try and convince you of that. I simply want you to know that neither view is heretical. Neither view changes the character of Jesus or anything like that. It, it's just... I think it's just an interesting issue to to wrestle with. So um, the words in Greek have the same ending because they're functioning the same way but otherwise they're very different words. It's not like somebody misread it, misheard it, misspelt it. Somebody has replaced one with the other and almost certainly I think it said anger originally and somebody changed it to compassion because anger makes no sense on the surface. So. With all that said, let's try and deal with the story a bit more. Gosh, there's so much to do. (laughs) This may have to be two weeks. First of all, let's let's think about this guy. He is a leper. Now, leprosy is what today is medically known as Hansen's disease. And it is a particular type of skin disease. The Greek word lepros for leper is um, a word that... Is less medically specific and it encompasses a large number of skin diseases and if you want to with me briefly turn to the book of Leviticus we're going to see that the, the Mosaic law had a lot to say about leprosy these various skin diseases that come under the heading of leprosy now I'm not going to, normally I like to read the entirety of Old Testament passages that are influencing the New. But I've got two entire chapters of Leviticus here, and I'm not going to read them all to you tonight. I just want to skim over them together. But in chapter 13, the heading in my Bible says laws about leprosy. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white and the skin in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair on it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day and if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days and the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day and if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the The priest shall announce him clean it is only an eruption and he shall wash his clothes and be clean and it goes on like this for a whole chapter and the bottom line is this if somebody's got a skin disease the priest is the one who declares them to be clean or unclean and they have to examine them and if they are clearly leprous Remember, that term encompasses a lot of different skin diseases. But if they fall into that category of skin diseases, then they are unclean. And there are sacrifices that need to be made, and they need to be outside of the camp, and they will make other people unclean. If they may not be unclean, it could be that the disease is spreading, and they will be. So they're cast out for seven days, and then they're rechecked. And if they're still okay, if prog- the disease hasn't progressed, then they're cast out for another seven days and then they're checked again. And then if, if, if they're still okay, then that, that two weeks is enough time to know that this isn't a disease that's going to get worse and therefore they're not leprous and they're not unclean. The issue of leprosy and being unclean was a big deal. And as a result of that, um, it was important for the priest to discern whether this was a leprous disease that made them unclean. And. The whole of the chapter is dealing with all the specifics of declaring whether he is clean, declaring whether he's unclean, and, you know, is this spot part of a disease, or is it just, you know, an outbreak of something else that's less less serious? And often, you know, as you go through the chapter, it involves shaving a person's head so the skin can be better observed, and, and things like that. And there is an entire chapter about the discernment of leprosy. And the reason that this is such a big deal is because um, it makes a person unclean. It makes a person unclean. Later in the chapter verse 56 if the priest examines and if the disease area is faded after it has been washed he shall tear out the garment or the skin or the warp and the or the woof and if it appears again on the garment in the warp or the woof or any article made of skin, it is spreading. You shall burn with fire whatever has the disease. This is a contagious disease. And leather and clothing and things of that nature have to be burnt if they have been in contact with this disease to stop the disease from spreading. And what would happen in that society is this idea of, you know, we have um, the... the, the the imagery, I think, has been communicated well through a certain popular culture, but the idea of a leper ringing a bell and saying, unclean, unclean, was actually true. That's what happened. And the reason is, a leper was unclean. And if a leper came up to you and touched you, you were unclean. And then you'd have to go to the priest and they cast you out for seven days and wait to see if you develop the disease before we knew whether you were unclean or not. And you would have to do some ceremonial cleansing and washing and what have you because, you know, if they touch your clothes, you'd have to burn your clothes because you could become unclean because of this leper. It was a serious situation. Now, keep half a finger there because we're going to come back to Leviticus later, but looking back at Mark's Gospel... I think that this really paints the picture. The leper comes to Jesus. So here's Jesus preaching and casting out demons, and a leper comes to him. Now, when we last saw Jesus, there were many who were being healed, and it said in verse 33, the whole city was gathering at the door. Now, if we're going to take my tentative conclusion, he's not doing as much healing right now, He's not doing a healing ministry as such, at this stage now. Those crowds may not be as bad, but he's still going to have a big following. This is the guy that speaks to demons and they would go. This is the guy who teaches with authority like nobody else. He is gathering crowds. So when we're told that a leper comes to him, that leper is somebody who is, is ostracized from society not because of religious bias of the Pharisees, but because the law of Moses says that they're unclean. Now, I wish we had time to turn to all of these passages, but consistently in Scripture, we see leprosy as being something that is put upon somebody because of their sin. In the book of Numbers, we have, in chapter 12, we have the story of Miriam rebelling against Moses and her being struck with leprosy as a result. When we have Naaman, the Assyrian who was healed from leprosy, we have the servant of Elisha going after him to gather some payment for that healing that Elisha refused to take. The servant goes back and takes some of that money and when Elisha you know, confronts him over this, the servant is struck down with leprosy because of his sin. And again in uh, Second Chronicles and, uh, chapter... I might just turn to that one. You stay where you are, I'll just turn there for you. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 to 21, we have the story of King Uzziah who was a powerful king who did amazing things and was victorious in battle, but was told in verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Isn't that a familiar tale in both biblical literature and elsewhere? For he was unfaithful to the Lord of his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And what happens to him as a result? He gets leprosy. It's something that comes as a result of sin. A person is unclean and they are going to spread and make others unclean. And I think in a sense it's a picture of sin and what sin does. You remember Paul talking to the uh, the Church of Corinth and talking about how sin is like, and false doctrine is like yeast that spreads throughout the bread, throughout the loaf. In the same way we've got to deal with sin because if sin becomes acceptable, within the congregation, then other people will do it as well, and it will spread. And leprosy is like that, it's a picture of that. And so I think the issue with, with this leper is that he is not supposed to be near people because he will make them unclean. And because that's a picture of sin, and the cleanliness and the uncleanness and the sacrificial system is of course a picture pointing to Christ, who will ultimately cleanse us of all sin. Because of all of that, this is an important issue. Now, this is so important. So if you're losing me a little bit, I'm hoping this is clear to you, but really hear this, this is important. In all four Gospel accounts, Jesus routinely, routinely breaks religious laws. He goes out of his way to break religious laws. He breaks religious laws and waves it in the face of the lawmakers to, just to offend them. But the laws he breaks are Pharisaical laws. They're the additional laws that the Pharisees and the previous rabbis had made to prevent people from breaking Mosaic law. Jesus never breaks Mosaic law. He keeps Mosaic law. He had to keep Mosaic law because he, as well as being God incarnate, was a Jewish man. And if he'd broken the law, then he would have been unclean. He'd have been a sinner and his death on the cross would have accomplished nothing. He had to not only be a law keeper, he had to be seen to be a law keeper but what he did is he went out of his way to show his respect was for the law of Moses which was biblical and he had disrespect for the law of the Pharisees. That's the context of him saying to people come to me because my burden is easy and my yoke is light because with me you need to keep the law of Moses. With the Pharisees you've got thousands more laws to keep. Now, all of this leads us with very important background to a leper in a crowd, probably approaching Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling. Now, he's kneeling. There's, there's, there's nothing in this picture that gives the impression of a leper saying, Hey, Jesus, you over there, 100 yards away. The text seems to say the opposite. That this leper comes to Jesus, is begging him, and kneels down before him. Now that gives us two massive problems. And one more minor problem. Let's do the minor one first. The minor problem is, the text in the previous verse seems to suggest that Jesus is not doing the healing right now. And someone is coming demanding to be healed. That's the minor thing more majorly we have somebody who is unclean who's presumably coming into a crowded area and spreading his uncleanness perhaps there are other people now who are going to be unclean as a result but I'm going to put that aside as well and I'll tell you why because our clues are always in the text a leper came to him imploring him and kneeled and kneeling said to him if you will you can make me clean there are five pronouns there referring to Jesus him 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 and then in the speech you you and there's not a single mention of a crowd I think this man acted inappropriately because he put all the people in that area at risk of being unclean He broke not just convention, but he broke decency in potentially making people unclean under Mosaic law. But they are not the focus. The focus is on Christ. If this man comes to Jesus and touches Jesus, then Jesus can be perceived to be unclean. Jesus can now be someone who's unclean under Mosaic law. Requiring sacrifice for him to be clean. Can you see how messed up that gets when we know who Christ is and what he's come for and his relationship to the law? That's a huge problem. And that, my friends, is the reason why I think Jesus' reaction to this man was anger. You've come in here, you've put these people at risk, but more to the point, in Mark's focus, you've put me at risk. Now, I know at this point people will say, but surely Jesus can't be made unclean when there is contact, he makes him clean. Yes and no. I do think at this point, there is the issue of, who is this Jesus? There is this... this, uh, there is coming up in the next two chapters a whole bunch of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, between Jesus and the scribes. And he is going to wind them up something crazy. He's going to go out of his way to break their laws. And he needs it to be clear that he keeps the law of Moses. And if this man touches Jesus... We could argue to a blue in the face that that wouldn't make Jesus unclean because of who Jesus is. But that says nothing about the impression that is given to society as a whole. The law states clearly that if a man is touched that he becomes unclean. That gives us a problem and I think we see the leper coming, imploring, and kneeling. And those three consecutive phrases seem to give it a picture, it paints a picture of coming ever nearer. But there's nothing that says he touches Jesus. Before, he, why doesn't he touch Jesus? Because before he gets the chance, Jesus gets cross with him. What on earth are you about to do, effectively? So what does Jesus do? Moved by his anger, angry that this guy would do this, he reaches out and touches him. And that's the difference. He wasn't touched by the man, he touched the man. And that to me is the crucial difference in this. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will a response to if you will, do you desire, yes it is, I, yes, yes he says I do desire, be clean. And so Jesus touches him and takes away his leprosy and by Jesus initiating that act it takes away the implication of Jesus getting knocked and him becoming unclean. Now, he, he reaches to pass his cleanliness on to the unclean man rather than the unclean man to pass on his uncleanliness to Jesus, even if it's a question of perception. And that's then what happened. And immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, for us to understand the significance of this, we have to go from Leviticus 13 to Leviticus 14. And so when we go back to Leviticus, and we go to chapter 14, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. So chapter 14 is dealing with what you do when a leprous person is clean, has been cleansed. And there are sacrifices that need to initially be made. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Isn't that interesting? Here's somebody who's claiming to be clean and he can't come into the camp and say, all oh, right, I'm clean. He's got to go out of the camp. The priest has to go out of the camp to check him. Because the guy can't come into the camp in case he's not clean. That's how serious it was about not spreading. And the priest shall look, and if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds, and cedarwood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel. And, and so this is, this is sacrifice that's made. For Even for the claim of healing, there's a sacrifice that has to be made. And... Um, The live bird, um, they dip the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed in the fresh water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times, on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. So even if you're healed, you've got to be cleansed in the sight of the law. So even if you say, I've been healed, they come and they check, and before they make any decision, they come and they take this bird, they kill it, and they use the other bird to sprinkle the blood, and you're uh, sprinkled with this blood. And this is the way in which ceremonial cleansing is begins. And he is to, who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head and his beard and his eyebrows and shave off all his hair and he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and he shall be clean. So in other words... He has this cleansing ceremony, he seems to be clean, then another seven days have to be wait to make sure it's gone. He shaves off all of his body hair, even his eyebrows, to make sure there's no signs of this disease still. And then on the eighth day, Verse 10, he takes two male lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish and a grain offering of three tenths of an ephath and then it goes on. And there's this entire process of sacrifice that has to be done if a person has been healed of leprosy. And it involves unblemished lambs. And we know who that's pointing to, right? So this is a whole sequence of events, and it goes on, and as the chapter progresses, it then deals with, well what happens if you're poor and you haven't got enough money for these lambs? Because lepers aren't going to be working a good job at that period of time, are they? So, so, so what are you going to do about getting lambs? And so there's, there's an alternative for people who are poor. And there is an entire chapter of Scripture of 57 verses not a short chapter, that says this is what you do when you're healed from leprosy. How many people were healed from leprosy? Well, let's go through them. There was Miriam in Numbers, but it is argued, and I, again I had to, tent- i use that word again tentatively, I tentatively conclude because the chronology in Numbers doesn't completely, it doesn't follow on from Exodus and, you know, and Leviticus. They kind of have to be harmonized to some degree. But I think that Miriam's leprosy happened before the law was given. In which case, she wasn't under this law. Right? What about Nahum? Na- uh, Na- Naaman, rather. He, he goes to, to, to Elisha to be healed. And Elisha says, well, go wash yourself in, uh, in the uh, Jordan. He's like, why don't want to go there? Dirty Jewish river. I'd much rather go to my own rivers. They're much nicer and cleaner. And his servant says, no, no, you need to go and do it. So he does it and he's healed. Right? Well, why doesn't he then have to go and make sacrifices? Answer, he's not a Jew. He's Syrian. He's a Gentile. He's not under the law. And then, as I've told you already, Elisha's servant goes after him. When Elisha refuses payment for the healing, Elisha's servant goes after him and says, hey, hey, hey. How about a little bit of that money? And he gets a bit of the money and he comes back and Elisha says, where have you been? He says, I haven't been anywhere. What are you talking about? And Elisha says, I was there in spirit. I know what happened. And the leprous disease goes on him. And it goes on to his children, to the next generation, under old covenant. But there's no healing. And what about Uzziah, who we talked about in second Chronicles a moment ago? What about him when he got given leprosy? There wasn't any healing. In fact, I don't think there's a single example in the Bible from the time that this law, Leviticus 13 and 14, was given until the time of Christ, that a single Jewish person under that law was healed of leprosy. In other words, you've got an entire chapter of Scripture that had no purpose and was never used. And that is why the Pharisees the scribes, the experts in the law, they taught in their own writings that the healing of a leper was a special miracle that would only be done by the Messiah. So when Jesus does this miracle he's not just healing a person in the way that he'd heal someone who had some other ailment. He is doing something that the religious leaders of that day said that only the Messiah could do. That's why it's so significant that the leprosy leaves him and makes him clean. Now, verse 43, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Now, listen, if Jesus was moved with anger and then he was all lovey-dovey after that that would be a contrast but the only other thing we're told about jesus's interaction with this leper yes he says i want to make you clean and he makes him clean he touches him first and he makes him clean but then afterwards he sternly charges him Now this is a very rare word. It doesn't come up in the Bible much at all. It's used more commonly in the Septuagint, which most of you now know, is the Old Testament translated into Greek. And it's always used as a term of anger. Funnily enough, the only other time I see it used in the Gospels is elsewhere in Mark's Gospel. And I'm going to just turn there now. And again, you don't need to. I'm just going to read it very briefly. but in. Uh, in chapter 14 of the Gospel, Jesus is anointed while he's at the house of Simon the leper and a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her that is the same word in the greek as jesus here sternly warning this leper so the word that they use the word jesus uses here is the same word that later in the gospel is used to scold someone who in their mind has wasted a whole bunch of money so this is another term of anger it was it literally refers to the snorting of a horse's nostrils Ever seen a horse snort from its nostrils? It's a kind of a, a, a fury that we have. So Jesus sternly charging him is a polite way of saying Jesus scolded him. Jesus told him, told him off, so to speak. He's not telling him off for what he's done, but that same word is being used to say, now make sure you do this. So that's why the term is is translated here in my version as sternly warned him because as opposed to chapter 14 where it says scolding, that's talking about something that's been done whereas Jesus here is referring to something that he must do or or mustn't do. And so it's a warning. It's, It's saying the same word but in advance of something rather than after something. So again, it's another word of anger. And just to wrap it up, He sent him away. The term for send away is literally cast out. It's the same word that was used of Jesus casting out demons. The same word used for Jesus being cast out into the wilderness. It's this powerful fighting word of, of, of being thrown out. So Jesus speaks to him really harshly and throws him out. Now, you combine those three things together. Moved with anger, speaks to him harshly, and then casts him out. And you get a picture of a really quite aggressive, is the word, but a really strong incident. You don't see gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In fact, we see a Jesus who's far more closely related to the Jesus who turns over tables in the temple at the end of this Gospel than we do to the Jesus who compassionately heals people. There's something different about this healing. And as I said to you, I think it is because this unclean man comes to a place where unclean people shouldn't be and he risks making other people unclean but most of all he risks making Jesus unclean. But this second part of anger is very much tied up to what he needs to do now. Jesus charges him sternly, sends him away and says to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, not only in this second half of this story do we see the parallels with anger. There's anger before the healing, and there's anger after the healing. But I think we also see the parallels of concern for Mosaic law causing anger before the healing and now we see concern for Mosaic law bringing anger after the healing. What he says to him is don't go around telling people. Now, if you were a leper, you're outside the camp, you beg for your food and your money and you ring a bell and shout unclean so that nobody comes too close to you. And then suddenly you're clean. You're going to be a happy chappy. Are you not? If that happened to you or to me, we want to go and tell everybody immediately. And Jesus knows that the man wants to do that because he's going to be happy at being healed. But there's more to it than that. He already knows from the man approaching him and the way he approached him, that this is a man who is not concerned about the things of God. There are plenty of people in Jesus' ministry who love God, and so it follows that they love Jesus. But there are plenty of people in Jesus' ministry who don't really care for God, but they like the fact that there's a guy who does miracles and turns, turn, you know, multiplies fish and loaves and, and, and heals people and casts out demons, and they want to see that show. And this guy has shown us already in his approaching of Jesus that he's not concerned about the law. And so Jesus says, now look here, pal. And I'm obviously very loosely paraphrasing here with all my tentative conclusions thrown in. But if I'm right on those conclusions, he's essentially saying, look, pal, I can tell that you're not bothered about the law of Moses. But this is important. You need to not rush off and tell people because the law requires you, Leviticus chapter 14, to do stuff now that you've been healed. Now, that may not be important to you. I know it's not important to you. You've shown me that it's not important to you. So I am telling you really firmly now, I've just healed you. I've done what you wanted. Yes, I want to heal you and I have healed you, but you really need to go and do this. Very firmly, snorting, he tells him this. Why? Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, that's Leviticus 14, for a proof for them. We are now having a transition from the introduction of Jesus' ministry, healing. Um, Casting out demons, showing his authority to the point where that authority that has now been proven in chapter 1 will be the authority that will give him the authority to go and speak to those religious leaders and say, you are wrong. This is what God says. He's done that a little with, with his teaching with authority in, in, earlier on this chapter, but he's now going to go and break their laws. He's going to go and do things that they think is sinful, like healing people on the Sabbath. And he's going to go break their laws. And before he does that, he needs this guy to go to them and say, I've been healed of something that you said only the Messiah could heal. He wants him to show in his healing, in his cleansed state, to show that Jesus is the one who has authority to do the things he's going to do in the next two chapters. It's essential that they see this because when he turns up and says I was healed they've got to say, what do you mean you're healed? How did this happen? Jesus healed me. they then got to, because they've got to keep the law whether they like it or not, they've got to make the initial sacrifice. And then they've got seven days of thinking about it, wondering whether this person really is the Messiah before they then go back, shave this guy of all his hair, discover that he is healed And have to sacrifice an unblemished lamb. That's a statement to them. That is a statement and a half to them. That's what he was supposed to do. Verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter let me just say in this last verse this is more evidence to some of my conclusions jesus went to the wilderness to a desolate place okay and he prayed and he came away from that time of prayer and solitude and said i need to be preaching and so he went out and he preached and he cast out demons which as i said i think. Goes well with the preaching because of the interruptions. But it doesn't say that he was going to keep healing because he had a job to do. What happened before that time of solitude is that the whole city's there wanting him. Come and heal me, come and heal me, come and heal me. And he says, No, 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 this is not why I'm here. I've got to preach this gospel message of chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. That's what I've got to do. I've got to preach this good news. This is why I'm here. And this healing, which he's happy to do, which shows his authority, which is part of the whole picture, is nevertheless a distraction and a hindrance to that ministry. And now, this guy is supposed to go and his healing, this this exceptional healing in a situation that was thrust upon Jesus, this healing should now be used as a testimony to the religious leaders. But instead, this guy, because he's not focused on the things of God, he uses this to go and tell everybody else how exciting this is. And now, Jesus can no longer do what he was trying to do. This man has been healed, and by disobeying Jesus, following his healing, in his excitement, he's hindering the work of God. Because Jesus can no longer openly enter a town. People are coming to him from everywhere and this is viewed as a negative. And can you see the parallels here between the previous section where he had the whole city there, then he has this isolation, and then he goes away and he preaches and has a preaching ministry, and now this guy forces himself on Jesus, he heals the guy so that he's not seen to be unclean, whether he, I think he would have been, but he's not seen to be unclean. He heals this guy, and now this this guy goes and spreads the word that this man has healed him of leprosy. (gasps) Only the Messiah can do that. And everybody now comes out and they want to be healed. And the very thing that Jesus needs to be doing, the preaching, he now can't do as easily because he's being mobbed by these people. And that's not what he wanted. Yes, the testimony of the healing of the leper is a good testimony. But it was a testimony for the religious leaders. If the religious leaders believe Jesus, then the people will believe Jesus. It was a testimony to them. But the man disobeyed. And can you see one last little irony here? The man comes to him at the start of this passage. And he's a leper. And he can't live in the town. He's ostracized from society. He comes to Jesus and Jesus heals him. And remember we talked about this possibility of Jesus being seen to be unclean. Right? He comes to Jesus. Jesus heals heals this man and cleanses him, and this man is now clean and can be in society. He shouldn't be. He hasn't done the sacrifices. He hasn't been to the priest, but he can now be in society and amongst people because, hey, look at me. I've got no no leprosy. I'm healed. And Jesus is the one who now has to go to desolate places like one who is unclean. That's a really deliberate parallel there. The man comes from desolate places and he's... becomes clean, and now Jesus has to go to desolate places. Isn't that just clever little literary device from Mark, how he communicates all this? So hopefully, in showing you all of this, I've made a good case for Jesus being angry. Initially, it looks like a ridiculous situation, but when you see it in the flow of the context of Mark, when you see it in the the broader context of leprosy and the law of Moses, and when you see how Jesus responds afterwards, then I think it makes perfect sense. But I can also see why the ancient scribes were really shocked by it, and felt the need to change it, and why, when people made copies, they went with the newer version, because it was an easier one for them to swallow. And the fact that it shocked them is the whole point. This is a story that's supposed to shock us.